Uh, at the end of the previous uh, section we looked at, we heard God's challenge to Satan. Can anyone remember what it was? Have you considered my servant Job? He points him out. And the effect that that was having, of God pointing out Job, was actually to underline another thing, wasn't it? To say, Satan, do you see how great I am? The Lord God was saying, do you see how great I am? That a man would fear me, turn from evil, and live for me. So it had the effect of God saying, Satan, do you see how great I am? How worthy of praise and glory and honour that the Lord God is. Now that's what Satan should acknowledge, as Job clearly does. But Satan is unwilling to worship the Lord. We know that, don't we? And that's why he'll grasp at anything else to, other than God's greatness to explain Job's faith. Because if he says it is God's greatness that causes Job to fear him, he's also got to praise God. And he's not willing to do that. And so we get that verse, don't we, at the end of the previous section we looked at uh, in verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? And this is the reason that he's going to say, Job fears God. Not that you're great God, not that you're worthy of praise and honour, and, and the, the praise and honour of all people everywhere, including Job. But for another reason, he says in verse 10, Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. To effect, Satan's saying, he doesn't really think you're that great. In fact, there isn't really that much reason for, you, for him to praise you, other than the things that you give him. It's the ultimate dishonour, isn't it? It's like someone saying to me, oh, Eddie doesn't love you, Rob. He just likes the ice creams. You know. He doesn't really love you. There's nothing really that lovable about you, Rob, but the ice creams. And that's essentially what Satan is saying, isn't it? God, Job doesn't love you for who you are, implied there's nothing all that great to love about you. No, he loves you for what he gets from you. And that is the ultimate dishonour, isn't it? And to not honour God is, is to choose to do this. It's quite stark, isn't it, when you see Satan doing it to God. Because to not honour God, to refuse to honour him as God, is to dishonour him. In this kind of way, to this kind of strength. And that's exactly what Satan does. He refuses to praise God, to honour him as God. And so he dishonours him with what he says. So Satan said, didn't he, I can prove it to you if you take Job's stuff away. Job won't honour you anymore. He's not going to fear you. In fact, he's going to prove that he never really feared you. That you're not all that great. And then you'll see that I'm right. Job will curse you to your face. So that's exactly what's happened in the previous bit we looked at, isn't it? Satan's saying, I can prove to you that if you take this stuff away, Job will curse you to your face. Well, God calls Satan's bluff, if that's not too... 
um, sort of insensitive a point about it, but he does, doesn't he? He says he allows Satan to try to prove it. That Job's fear of God is just because of what he gets from God. Now this doesn't sit that comfortably with us, and I think we're going to be challenged when we hear this tonight. We're going to be challenged to hear that actually there is something more important in life, in this world, than our comfort. There is something more important in this world, in our lives, than our comfort. And that's the glory of God. God's glory is more important than anything else. And I find this truth hard to stomach. I've got to be honest with you. I find that hard to stomach because I tend to think that this world and this life is all about me. You might not realise that. If you've been around this church enough, maybe you do sometimes realise that Rob thinks this world is about him. But, you know, that's completely the wrong way around, isn't it? My life, your life, is about God and his glory, not me and mine. And not you and yours. And this kind of thing brings us up short, doesn't it? Because it makes us realise, huh? So you're saying it's not all about my comfort. There's something more important than my comfort. And that's what... Job's life and that's what we're going to see in this passage today so I hope that's going to challenge you and challenge you to think about God and think about his glory Uh, Christopher Ashe puts it this way um, it matters for the glory of God that there should be a man who worships God because he is worthy of worship and for no other reason do you get that it's exactly what's going on here it matters for the glory of God that there should be a man who worships God because he is worthy of worship and for no other reason. And that's what this is going to prove. So we've got to see that, haven't we, uh, before we dive in. And we're going to dive in uh, a bit in verse 13. Um, under our first point, uh, we're going to see that all Job has is taken from him. Everything. And let's see that in verse 13 to 19. I'm going to read. Um, so let's read together from verse 13 to 19. Now, there was a day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their older brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were ploughing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While that man was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While that man was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels, and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. It's just breathtaking, isn't it? To read that. And this is not made up. This is is real. This was a day in the life of Job. And a day in the life of a... It could have been a believer today, couldn't it? And uh, we see, don't we, that it's kind of flagged up on verse 13 that there's going to be one 
final blow to Job. And that's his sons and daughters. Because it says in verse 13, doesn't it? Um, now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Why are we told that? We're not, we, don't, we don't know, do we, until we read the end of the list. So we almost know what's coming. And if you look at that list, uh, the order of the reports that are coming back, they're in reverse order to 1 verse 2. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen and 500 female donkeys. So the reports come back in reverse order. The donkeys, the oxen, the camels, the sheep. And you're sort of thinking, no, no, we know where this is going. His, His family, his children. It has that effect, doesn't it, of closing in on the one thing. You know, the thing that actually... If you think about that list, it couldn't really be replaced. It couldn't be replaced at all. And it's devastating, isn't it? You read that and you think, that happened to Job in one day. It, it goes against the whole thing of calling it a coincidence, doesn't it? Because it's a force, independent events that happened to him, isolated from each other. Two of them, yeah, you could say, okay, well, it's influenced by this world we live in. The, the, the evil of other people because they're raids but two of them are, are natural you know are, are out of man's control wind and fire um, the second and the fourth one are wind and fire uh, when it says in verse 16 while he was yet speaking there came another and said the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them so even in how it's described to Job it's God the fire of God from, fell from heaven so this is no accident and we know don't we that there's been a conversation that has resulted in this that God's glory is at stake here and this is what is going to prove that Job's faith is genuine and that that will result in the glory of God and yet for Job it doesn't feel like that for Job we're going to see him in pieces. And, uh, and yet we're going to see some amazing, remarkable things that he says in light of that. Um, that show actually that he's, his faith endures. His faith is genuine. I don't know how you would react to that, uh, but let's have a look at how Job responds. In verse 20. Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, all signs that he is deeply sorrowful. You know, if I was to start pulling at my clothes, you would think I'm in distress, right? If I was to shave my head, you'd think, yeah, that's, he's, he's not very happy. Um, he fell on the ground and worshipped. And then it tells us what Job said in worship. Striking, isn't it? Worship. That word worship is it's used there of what Job did. It's not, it's, not a fe- it's not particularly a feeling necessarily. It's not a, a particular song or anything like that. It's not a hype. It's he's acknowledging God in the pit of despair. <laughs> and that is worship. <laughs> he worshipped. 
Um, let's have a look at what he says. He says this in verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's, that's impossible, isn't it? I mean, you look at that and you think, that, that, that a man would be saying that after that has happened to him. What, how, how do you explain that any other way other than God is real and Job's faith in God is real? Because for a man to be saying, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's, that's remarkable, isn't it? And we're told in verse 22, just to make the point, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He didn't, he didn't curse God, as Satan said he would. Okay, well, if, if it was up to us, we probably would leave it there and say, enough's enough, point proven, God's glorious, Satan. You can't show me that he's not. Job's faith proves that. And yet we're going to make the same point over again, second time. Uh, verses two, three, uh, chapter 2, verses 3 to 8. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and right, upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh. And he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. We thought that, well, Satan's alternative explanation for Job's faith, other than God's greatness, well, that is in jeopardy, isn't it? It's lies and tatters with the previous response of Job. But Satan can't admit defeat. He's far too proud for that. So what's he do? He changes up his argument. No, no, that wasn't it. Um, oh, yeah, how silly of me. Um, we know a man's health is far de- dearer to him than his own family. It's his skin that he ma- might, cares about most. So why don't you strike him? Why don't you bring pain and discomfort to him? God, that's why he trusts and believes in you. Um, you've given him health. He's still alive. In fact, nothing has touched him. And if it did, he would curse you to your face. Again, there's no reason for you to be praised and glorified God other than what people have, the lives they have. That's the reason we're here, isn't it? Singing about Jesus, because God has given us health. And we're going to see whether that's true. Uh, let's look at, at Job. Um, let's look at what happens to him uh, in the next bit. So Satan went out, verse 7, from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And Job took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Once again, Satan is permitted to bring his worst, and this is in, in terms of physical suffering to Job. Yet, again, he's not allowed to take his life. Because remember, the point is that Job, Job's faith is going to be proven genuine. You can't prove his faith if he's dead. 
So you're not allowed to take his life. Um, now Job is grieving terribly still from what we just saw. And he is also feeling excruciating pain on top of that. You think? I mean, the only words I can imagine being able to utter in that circumstance, having lost Eddie, Susanna, Lydia, and then to be struck with this physical excruciating pain, day in, day out, all night long. The only words I can think I'd utter is, enough, Lord. I can't bear it anymore. Have you ever prayed like that? Because, you know what, that is a Christian prayer. We sort of think that there's this sort of, oh, we've got to say, oh, God, you're great, and your purposes are good, and that is true. But have you ever prayed enough, Lord? Enough? I can't bear it anymore. Or how long, oh, Lord? Um, It feels dangerously close to wanting your life to end, doesn't it? Which is why we think we can't pray like that as Christians, because it's sort of almost suicidal, and that would be the worst thing ever, right? But we're going to hear Job in the next chapter... Wanting his life to end. Praying that his years would end, that his life would be cut short, that he wouldn't have to go on. And uh, there's a danger, really, when we look at these amazing statements that Job said, blessed be the name of the Lord, the Lord gave, the Lord take away, that we sort of make faith out to be those expressions. Faith in suffering is only ever, God, you're in control, we trust you, and it is. But it's also what we're going to read in chapter 3. And you pick out some words from chapter 3 and you might think, oh, this feels a little bit different. It's lament. It's how long, O Lord? Enough, Lord. I don't want to live anymore. And yet he's directing all of that to God. So it shows it's still faithful suffering. It's not not like what he does in chapter 2 is, well done, Job. And chapter 3 is, no, you really shouldn't have done that. And all of the rest of the chapter of Job is, is telling us basically what you shouldn't say when you suffer. No, it's, it's exactly the opposite. Job can be said to be righteous even at the end of this book in chapter 42. He doesn't speak wrongly about God when others do. Uh, there's, a, there's one who does speak wrongly in this situation and it's his wife. So you think there's three, two trials, there's actually three Because then his closest companion is the one saying, curse God, enough's enough. Do away with this nonsense about God being in control, Job. Curse God and die. That's what she says, isn't it, in verse um, 9 of chapter 2. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. He's not saying that she is foolish, but he's saying the words that you're saying are just as foolish as those who are foolish. He's he's saying we shouldn't speak like that. And you can see the we as well in verse, in the next bit. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? That word evil is not a moral evil, it's it's calamity. So should we not receive disaster? God is, Job is not charging God of moral evil. He's, charging, he's saying that God has given calamity, disaster. And it says again in, verse, um, in that verse, in all this Job did not sin with his lips. Job's faith is real. 
It's genuine. And uh, God knew that, didn't he? Because he said that all that the suffering could ever show was what was really there, which was Job's faith in me, which is real. And do whatever you want, but it's not going to change the facts of the truth. You can, it would just reveal what is true. Job trusts in God. God is real. Job's faith is real. And uh, all of that uh, will only reveal uh, what is really there. Um, let's have a look. Uh, we're, we're just going to read. Let me just grab my book. I've made someone cry anyway. But, um, uh, I'm just going to read this uh, quote from a book. Um, let, me, let me read it to you. Job is an extreme book. Job is extravagantly rich, wonderfully happy, and extremely great. He is not only one among many great men, he is the greatest of all the people in his region. And then his downfall is extreme. He does not go from moderate riches to a measure of poverty. He goes from extravagant riches to absolute destitution. He does not do so gradually. He does so in the day. He does not experience the loss of one child or even two. He loses all ten children. And all, and he does so in the day. This poses a bit of a problem for us as we read the book. However deep our suffering, it is unlikely that our experience can ever do more than even approximate Job's suffering. We have neither been as great as Job nor as fallen, neither so happy nor so lonely, neither so rich nor so poor, neither so pious, which means religious, you know, uh, nor so cursed. All of which points to a fulfilment greater and deeper than your life and mine. Job in his extremity is actually but a shadow of a reality more extreme. And he goes on to say that the greatest man and the greatest suffering came to our Lord Jesus Christ. And he endured to death, knowing full well what was going to happen to him. Um, and that is the example, that this, the foreshadow that this is pointing to. And he was utterly alone on the cross. And so we, we are to read this differently because of the coming of Jesus, because of who Jesus is. And also, as we've been singing in that first set of songs in light of the cross there will be differences to how this impacts us as believers today because Jesus has died and rose again that makes a difference Uh, for one it makes a difference because um, we're told that uh, Jesus uh, the son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil in 1 John 3 verse 8 and through his death Jesus will destroy the one who has the power over death that is the devil, and deliver those who, through fear of God, the fear of death, sorry, were subject to lifelong slavery. So there is a big difference that the cross brings in to the everyday believer, to us today. Job, extreme riches, extreme suffering, extreme loss. That's what it is, isn't it? He lost everything. And us today, as believers, as followers of Jesus, the cross changes that. Um, if, if you want an example of how that happens, um, so I'm going to read a bit from Revelation, verse 12. 
Uh, chapter 12, sorry. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. So one of the things the cross achieved was to throw down Satan from the heavenly places. So in Job's life, we're told, aren't we, that the the devil could bring accusation against Job to God in heaven. And yet, because of the cross, Satan has been cast down. So what that means is Satan can no longer, of any believer here, bring accusation against them to God. Because he's not in heaven. He's been cast down. He can still bring accusation. And we're told, aren't we, that Satan will bring accusation in this life, on the earth. And that's his, the main thing he wants to do, is unsettle us by saying, you know, you, you don't really trust God. You don't really believe God, do you? You know, all of that kind of stuff. So we are told that we need the armour of God, the shield of faith, that will extinguish the darts of the evil one against Satan. Because he's got lies on us. And in order to see them for for what they are as lies, we need to have the truth that God gives us. That we have faith in him, that he has done everything that we need to believe in him, and that our faith will endure. So even just the book of Job is reason to see that our faith endures. It is, uh, what do we say, indestructible. Because God has really brought that about in our lives. So we need the truth of God's word to extinguish the, his accusations. Um, so that's one thing that changes. Um, Peter, uh, 1 Peter 1 verse 6 uh, says, For a little while you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, when, which perishes when tested by fire, The genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Christ Jesus at his return. This is is Peter, one of the disciples, who himself was tested by Satan, wasn't he? Um, And his faith was proven genuine by that testing. And he's saying that to these Christians today, and the Christians then, the tested genuineness of your faith will result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus returns, it will bring God glory. It will make God good, look good on the day when he, Jesus returns, that all those people who trusted in him, their faith is seen to have withstood every <laughs> trial, every suffering, every difficulty that it could possibly face, and yet they're still there on the day when Jesus returns. That's wonderful, isn't it? It's a wonderful encouragement. Um, it's not necessarily what I'd say as counselling to Job in the moment of his suffering. And we're going to see that it's not like we have an answer to suffering as Christians and we just say, oh, there you go, there's your answer. But it is an encouragement, isn't it, for us? And it prepares us, actually, for suffering as well. The faithful suffering of believers, as you and I, proves... God is glorious, that he is great, 
It actually proves that. Proves God's glory in the heavenly realms and on the day when Jesus returns. But actually in this world today. And I, I want to say this just in terms of uh, if you're an unbeliever or someone who's looking to, into it. It can be so easy to dis- discount the Bible, can't it? I mean, we meet people on the estate uh, who would just say, this is completely made up. So there's no reason to even look at it because it's all fairy stories, it's all made up. But it's quite hard to, re- you could do that with the Bible, you could hide it, you could ignore it. It's quite hard to ignore Christians who are, who still, uh, who are still Christians and yet they've suffered terrible things. It's really hard to ignore them. And you have to have some kind of explanation for that. Because it's not normal. If, I guess as people might assume, uh, there's a sort of underlying reason why they follow that particular path as a Christian. They believe that God will give them good things and that's, it's all just a made up thing but they're, they're gullible enough to go with it. Then, you know, I look around this room and I think of all these people here have had suffering and they're still here. It doesn't make sense, does it? If, if the suffering was the thing that kept them fearing God, oh sorry, if the, if the good stuff was the thing that kept them fearing God, the suffering would just end that. And so you have to have an answer for that. And if God thinks that that the faithful suffering of believers is proof enough to Satan that he is defeated and that God is glorious, then it's surely proof enough for, for you and for me. The faithful Christian who suffers and yet endures is proof to, is enough proof to you that God is great, that he is glorious, that he is worth following. So I put that to you as a thought. You know, what other explanation do you have? And come to me afterwards and ask me, but I can tell you story after story after story of people who have, um, a friend of mine, he, his son committed suicide and he was only 13. He'd only just taken up a new job in a Christian organisation and that happens. Uh, one of Hannah and I, our friends, uh, she moved to join a church plant with her husband. He was the new minister of that church plant, only just got going. He was diagnosed with a brain tumour, wasn't it? And he died. Within, within a year or so, he just, just wasted away and died. And she just had a baby. Their first child together. What's she doing now? She's, she's trusting Jesus. For a little while you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, which perishes when tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen.